BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The world of cryptocurrency has always been a bit murky, to me at least. Bitcoin and its many blockchain descendants have drawn incredible money and interest, but it's been hard to tell, basically, is this really a thing? For the past five years, the pessimists on that question were losing. Huge amounts of money were made and invested in crypto. And then, since the end of last year, the price of most crypto things has collapsed. This month, FTX, a major exchange, sort of a NASDAQ of cryptocurrencies, blew up, and the flaming wreckage is spreading to the rest of the industry. So today, we discuss what happened and what it means for this city, which had quite a bit of crypto money floating around our institutions, corporate and cultural. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. To understand what's happening right now in crypto, I think we need to take a moment and describe the current debacle. FTX, run from the Bahamas by a supposed wonderkin named Sam Bankman-Fried, took in depositors' money and then lost it. Like a good old-fashioned Depression-era bank run, regular people who'd put their money into FTX, imagining they could take it out, found that they could not. So FTX, which had been valued at more than $30 billion, making Bankman-Fried into an extremely young billionaire, is now worth... Not so much, and is the target of investigations by the Securities and Exchange Commission and Justice Department. For an industry trying to shed its reputation as a way to buy drugs on the dark web, it has not been a good few months. Joining us to talk about what that might mean for the future of crypto and the technology world generally, we've got David Gura, reporter with NPR's Business Desk. Welcome. Great to be here. Margaret O'Mara, a historian of the modern United States at the University of Washington, with written a great book about the history of the technology industry as well. Welcome, Margaret. Great to be here. Thanks. And we have Hillary Allen, a law professor at American University, where she's an internationally recognized expert on financial stability regulation and new financial technologies. Welcome. Thank you so much. David, why don't we start off with you? Just give us like the last three weeks of crypto. What has been going on? It just feels to me uh, like the, I, it's, I can't even put together the network map of all the weird stuff that's been happening. Yeah, it's been cr- incredibly disorienting. And you lay it out really lucidly, sort of what happened with FTX and its sister hedge fund, Alameda Research, uh, and all that's happened since. But um, this has been a really rough year for crypto broadly. If you look at the value of Bitcoin, it's down by about two thirds from where it was at the beginning of the year. And we saw this kind of coincident precipitous drop as we saw all of this market turmoil because of just the state of the economy generally and, and mm-hmm. cryptocurrency sort of fell in tandem with speculative tech stocks. So they weren't doing great before all of this happened. But we're at a point here where you, know, you mentioned that Bitcoin was regarded or cryptocurrencies was regarded as this sort of wild west. What FTX was sort of trying to stake out by buying a lot of advertisements, you saw them during the, the Super Bowl, by buying naming rights to, to fields and stadiums and getting these high profile endorsements was, we're not that. We're trying to make this mainstream. We're doing this above board. And, and that notion has sort of fallen apart here in, in the last few weeks. And I think it's sort of come back down to earth. People are sort of recognizing the fact that this is largely an unregulated 
asset class and unregulated industry. Um, and you know, you mentioned people lost their money here. It seems clearer and clearer that it was lost through malfeasance, that money was taken from people's accounts to plug holes and in so doing uh, might be lost irrevocably. Um, and we've had the first bankruptcy hearing from FTX in a court in Delaware. I, I watched that unfold. And in those proceedings, what was sort of laid out was all that happened here over these last few months, especially what happened in the last few weeks. And it's a it's a scene of real desperation that's sort of caught up to the now former CEO of this company, Sam Bankman-Fried, he mentioned was regarded as this kind of shining light. He was everywhere, it seemed, talking to lawmakers and regulators, speaking at every conference that you could name of. His star obviously has has really fallen, um, you know, with with the value of this company as well. So it's it's a moment I think of of colossal reevaluation, not just of uh, this company and crypto exchanges, but just of the the asset class itself. Wow. Uh, I want to ask about the legal side of this because it seems you know for people who might be listening, Hillary Allen, this may just sound like good old fashioned fraud. Is that what it is, just with a technological gloss, or is there something else going on? some degree it is garden variety fraud, but the technological gloss is important because the technological gloss is in many ways why it was allowed to be perpetuated at this scale. I think when new technologies come in, they have this aura about them, um, this, this new era thinking as it's sometimes called, and people don't want to question it because they feel like they'll look silly. And so people defer to things that don't necessarily make sense to them that seem to have all the red flags of garden variety fraud, but this time it's different. Um, and so I think the fact that this was crypto mattered to the way the fraud was perpetuated. Mm. What do you think is going to happen on a legal basis? I mean, just based on your understanding of the facts. So there's, you know, there's a lot of moving parts here. You know, there are the enforcement actions. Um, and as you already mentioned, the Department of Justice is looking at this from a sort of a more garden variety fraud perspective. Um, the SEC and the CFTC, two of our securities regulators, have launched investigations. But then there's the question about what will happen in Washington about the law. So there were many bills that were being discussed Um about regulating crypto prior to this incident. And in fact, um, FTX had its fingerprints on a lot of those, had been involved in the discussions about that legislation. And so the question is, is this legislation we want to proceed with, um, given what we now know about FTX? Um, and so I think there are going to be a number of legislative hearings um, in the in the upcoming um, month or so to discuss FDX and its impact on this on this legislation. So this is definitely something to watch. Mm. Margaret Omar, I mean, you're a historian. You've written this great book, The Code. You've covered the mythologies, really, that have developed in Silicon Valley about how people build companies and who builds companies. How do you evaluate a character like Sam Bankman-Fried and this set of crypto folks who were you know, supposedly making money just to do good as what in this world that they called effective altruism? Yeah, well, it's it's fitting into a mold, but also very um, distinctive and I think very appealing at this moment in tech. But look, the Silicon Valley has had a long string of hits uh, when uh, investors take a bet on a very young and untested person. Um, uh, better yet, a young guy, uh, technically minded in a, in a hoodie or flip-flops or <laughs> casually dressed, um, seemingly unconcerned about anything but building great technology and uh, and telling a visionary story. This is a cycle, uh, you know, beginning with Steve Jobs and you know, 40 plus years ago to and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and Larry and Sergey 
Sergey. I mean, you name your your entrepreneur. So those those bright lights are sort of in in investors' eyes when Sam Bankman-Fried shows up, and he shows up at a time when tech has a, you know has been having a rough few years, especially the big platforms in terms of um, some questioning about you know these one-time boy wonders um, not doing as all not not being you know the the kinder gentler brand of capitalism that they thought. And here comes Sam Bankman-Fried, not only. Uh, telling a different story, more politically engaged, talking about changing the world, but also standing out in the crypto crowd as someone who seems more um, focused on bigger things. Hmm. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit more about effective altruism for those who haven't heard that term. Well, effective altruism is a is a philosophy that something that Sam Bankman-Fried kind of pre, predates his his interest in that predates his interest in uh, or his his building of of the of the now um, d- defunct platform, um, which is it, it is kind of looking at what are the um, I, in a sort of utilitarian way examining what the grand challenges are facing humanity, whether it be climate change or the threat of nuclear war or um, artificial intelligence and kind of runaway artificial intelligence, um, the big grand challenges and um, looking long term about what's going to have the most impact on um, where can your money have the most impact. And it's also in a way echoes of earlier philanthropic, American philanthropic Mm. philosophies going back to the 19th century and Andrew Carnegie's gospel of wealth, which was effectively a justification of, you know, to to amass a great fortune and then to give it away is a great, uh, the greatest thing someone can do. It's a justification for choosing to make money. And that certainly seems to be the calculus that Sam Bankman-Fried embarked upon. We're talking about the cryptocurrency collapse as well as the collapse of FTX, one of the major exchanges, with NPR Business Desk reporter David Gura, historian Margaret O'Mara, and law professor Hillary Allen. We'd love to hear from you. Did you invest in crypto over these last few years? Or perhaps crypto people invested in you? One thing that I'm particularly interested in is that here in the Bay Area, there was a lot of crypto money floating around in our philanthropic uh, worlds and, and cultural worlds. You can give us a call to tell those stories. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Uh, David, I uh, wanted to ask you just about what we think drove the run-up in crypto. I mean, when you look, you know, if you were to pull up the Bitcoin uh, share price chart, you'd see this incredible run up starting like around the beginning of the pandemic and peaking and, and declining at the end of last year. So what do we think drove this like, you know, really trillions of dollars moving in there? I think that there was a sense that this was a real thing. It was the next big thing and it was the real thing. And if you just go back to the beginning of the pandemic, we saw this with the trading of stocks as well. There were these new platforms for retail traders for you and me to download an app and trade stocks really easily. The same thing became true of trading crypto as well. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people just saw how quickly and high the values of these cryptocurrencies were rising and felt like if if other people have made a lot of money on this, I should be making a lot of money on this too. I'll be an idiot if I don't get involved in this. And I think that that's what drove it for for a long time. It certainly gave seed to a lot of these companies that sort of grew up in the ecosystem around it, a lot of these other exchanges and, and trading platforms. And we were seeing kind of the mainstreaming of of crypto as a result. And I think kind of a move away from the conversation centering on the kind of arcane technical aspect of it, which of course is important, but I think the goal here was to get people not to have to to, to wade through those waters to think that this was something that was kind of turgid and difficult to to get to. It just seemed like a way to make 
money. And I think that born of that were all of these other products. We saw the collapse today, or collapse over these last few weeks, but a company filing for bankruptcy today, BlockFi, which is a, a crypto mm. lender. There were all of these that emerged as well, not banks, but were offering loans with crypto and offering really huge interest rewards on on that. And it just seemed too good to be true. But for whatever reason, I think a lot of people were um, unwilling to, to recognize that at the time. And then you know, at the, the beginning of this year, we saw inflation continuing to be a huge issue. It's continued to be a huge issue, obviously, over the course of this year as well. And that's just had this kind of depressive effect on all kinds of assets. And, and crypto wasn't immune from that. I think that it did burst a bubble that had been there for a long time. A lot of backers of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies had said, this is going to be an inflation hedge that if we're in a period of high inflation, Bitcoin, for, for one example, is going to be something that's going to retain its value or become more valuable. That, that hasn't been the case. We've, we've seen it, as I say, fall with, with um, the value of tech stocks as well. So I think a lot of the, the mythology, a lot of the illusions that we had about crypto uh, really started to fade away at the beginning of this year. And um, there were a few kind of big drops, but it's been hovering around you know, the $16,000 level for these last few months. And again, that's just sort of radically lower than it was when it was, I think, at a high of fifty eight or 59000 Really amazing to see the number of things that got built over the top of this, including, you know, one little anecdote that I saw from a club in Miami is that last year they made $6 million, mostly from crypto entrepreneurs going into this club in Miami. Uh, so far, they've brought in in the tens of thousands of dollars uh, in the last few months. We're talking about the current cryptocurrency collapse with NPR Business Desk reporter David Gora, historian Margaret O'Mara, and law professor Hillary Allen, and we would love to hear from you. If you lost money in this FTX collapse or in the crypto problems generally, how are you dealing with it? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking crypto with NPR Business Desk reporter David Gore, historian Margaret O'Mara, and law professor Hillary Allen. We've got a listener who writes in to say, and this one's coming to you, Margaret, isn't real money's worth just as arbitrary as crypto since its worth is no longer based on gold? Um, I'd love to know where you take this. Whenever I hear this, I think like, well, actually, the worth of the dollar is based on the American military and many other things uh, around uh, how a country works that people want to ignore when they talk about this. But what, what's your answer to this, Margaret? 
Yeah, well, it, I mean, it's a very good question. It's a question that's been debated since the, you know, the beginning of paper money, <laughs> this idea that something, you know, fiat currency could could actually stand for something and what makes it meaningful. Well, what makes it meaningful? And I think the diff- the real signal difference between the dollar and other uh, national currencies and crypto is that the, is the nation states that are backing them, you know, even if it is not um, pegged to gold, even if it's not, you know, every dollar corresponds with a little nugget of gold and Fort Knox. Nonetheless, there is the yeah the power of the state uh, as a regulator, as um, uh, you know, as, as dictating you know designing mo- monetary policy. This is you know we're we're dealing with you know more of a century of of regulation that was designed kind of in response to the volatility of the 19th century currency system that was kind of had some things in common with crypto, <laughs> um, where you really had this extreme boom and bust fluctuation in value, where you had people at the top kind of manipulating the market, um, these crazy antics of these Gilded Age financiers, um, most of whom had fantastic facial hair and colorful nicknames. And, you know, but it's there's a lot of there are a lot of echoes there. And it's a good reminder of what what regulation um the, the these financial regulations why they matter so much yeah hillary allen let's talk about some of the regulations that are, are, could come into play that have been in play like what has the regulatory landscape looked like for these companies Sure. Well, there are regulations, as Margaret just said, that have been in place for a long time that we've learned through bitter experience are needed. Um, And some of those regulations, I think, have not been applied as strongly to the crypto space as we would have liked. And that comes back to what we were talking about earlier, this mystique around crypto and, you know, political pressure not to not necessarily enforce these. I mean, you, you had... Um, a bipartisan group of of Congress people writing to the SEC, you know, to, to tell them to back off um, from looking at FTX. Um, you know, so th- there was a lot of political pressure, and as a result, the the investor protection regulations that we would like to have seen um, applied to the crypto industry more strongly, perhaps should have been applied more strongly, hmm. but. There is some regulation that has done very well, and I just want to highlight that because I think it's sort of invisible to a lot of people. So you mentioned before that you know there are some clubs in Miami and that are that are suffering um, from the crypto bust, and there's also some um, charitable institutions that are mm-hmm. suffering because they've lost FTX's grants. But by and large, the spillovers from FTX's failure have stayed in the crypto ecosystem. So yes, BlockFi filed for bankruptcy this morning, but it hasn't infected the large banks. And so as a result, this is not turning into a recession the same way that subprime mortgages did in 2008. And that is in large part testament to banking regulation. The banking regulators have held firm and kept the crypto out of banking. And so that is a regulatory success story and one that we need to keep continuing. That's really interesting. You know, David, one thing that makes me think about is that the erasure of value that we're talking about here is enormous. Like when we say, all right, you know, FTX was valued at $30 billion and now it's in bankruptcy and maybe worth nothing. The actual amount of money that's been lost in crypto, right, is measured like in the trillions over the last few months. And yet we haven't... It, it, maybe it's a drag on our current economy or or maybe not, as Hillary suggests. Yeah, I think it's a really kind of fascinating thing to think about. So if you look at the market cap of cryptocurrencies right now, it's just under a trillion dollars. And, you know, it, it was at its high $3 trillion. That's still a, a real fraction of the size of, say, the stock market or 
markets for other traditional asset classes. So it's small. And a lot of people will bring that up to say that's one reason why we haven't seen the kind of wider contagion effect that, that, that we've seen uh, throughout throughout history, uh, in addition to what Hillary was talking about just, just a moment ago. But I think another aspect of this is that so much of this wealth was on paper. And yes, Sam Bankman-Fried was fabulously wealthy, and we hear a lot about the worth of this company. But there, there is an element of this where uh, a, a lot of that was um, unrealized. It was on paper. And then, you know, in the case of FTX in particular, it was based on this token that FTX made. And we haven't talked about that yet. But, you know, yeah, a can you ta- back, talk to us yeah. a little bit about like what a token is? I'll wade into these waters and have Hillary jump in and, and correct me if, if she will. But um, yeah, so so FTX created its own cryptocurrency for kind of two two reasons. One was to have to have a cryptocurrency that could be traded, and you know the market would set its value. Another was to sort of reward people who used its trading platform, kind of like frequent flyer miles plus. You know, it would it would give them sort of incentives or additional opportunities if they were to hold these tokens. And so um, they made a lot of these. They said that it was kind of insulated against. Uh, inflation, they would burn these tokens occasionally so that there was a sort of uh, less of them in, in circulation. Again, it created this illusion that it was kind of on, on the up and up. And so we've we've learned since through reporting, you know, first by Coindesk, but other outlets that, um, you know, this was funny money. And, uh, you know, it was it was on these balance sheets. But what was it exactly? And um, it wasn't liquid, as the company said it was. It was it was valued a lot less than than the company said it was as well. So, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about Bitcoin and Ether and all these other these other cryptocurrencies. There, there are a whole host, many of <laughs> many thousands of other cryptocurrencies that um, have existed. Some some no longer exist. And, you know, I think you hear a lot from critics of, of regulation that, you know, in this economy, you're going to have some of them fall apart. And that's a good thing that, the one, you know, ones that aren't good aren't going to last. But, um, you know, I think it, it, it bears a lot of focus in this particular case study that, that FTX sort of made this thing out of whole cloth. And um, it, it's certainly <laughs> one sort of feeble pillar on which this all rested. We're talking about the cryptocurrency boom and bust. Did you invest in crypto? What happened for you? Or maybe crypto people invested in you and your organization philanthropically or just, you know, as if you've run a restaurant or a bar here in San Francisco, like, did you see crypto money come and go? We'd love to hear from you as well. Let's take our first caller, William in Belvedere. Welcome. Uh, Yes, thank you very much. Uh, no one has noted the, the most remarkable aspect of this is the name of the guy. Uh, talk about reliability. Uh, bank is his middle name. <laughs> but at any rate, um, if I put money in the bank or invest in a company, well, the company is there. There's something actually there. And if uh, the company is there, it maybe makes money, maybe it doesn't make money. But it's there. It's concrete. This is something, it appears to me at any rate, that there could be tomorrow, there could be William of Belvedere cryptocurrency, <laughs> and the next one there's something else. I, I would think that perhaps regulation is exactly what should not be done. Because mm. once you begin to say we're regulating something, then people have confidence in it. If you're not regulating it, people naturally steer clear of it because they think there's something wrong or there could be something happen and that it isn't regulated. So I would appreciate the guest's perspective on not having any regulation. That's interesting. Uh, Hillary Allen, talk to us about that. 
So William of Belvedere has hit on the exact <laughs> dilemma that comes with, with regulating things. When you regulate things, you legitimize things. And so that's actually why I've been quite vocal in criticizing a lot of the proposals that we've seen come out of Washington so far for legislation, because it would do exactly what, what you're worried about, which is to, to legitimize these things. And not only to legitimize it in the eyes of everyday people, but also to legitimize it in the eyes of the banks. And then you can start to have that integration between mm -hmm. banking and crypto, which could set us up for a crisis. But not all regulation is the same. So enforcing anti-fraud regulation, for example, we've always done that. And I don't think that necessarily legitimizes the fraud. So I think it's a question of what type of regulation you're talking about. And it's something to be very careful about. Yeah. You know, David, something that comes up anytime we do a show um, about cryptocurrency and, and Bitcoin is John, some you know, comments like uh, listener John, who says, can we discuss the issues with how Bitcoin monetizes the use of energy through massive Bitcoin mining operations? Will the drop in value result in any reduction in this climate killing waste? Uh, just to set this up for, for listeners, the way that Bitcoin specifically, the specific cryptocurrency, it does very complex calculations in order to sort of mint new coins that uses uh, power to do that comp computation and therefore uses a, a lot of electricity. Other currencies, though, one, it feels to me, David, like one of the drivers of these other non-Bitcoin currencies was that they promised to be more energy efficient in the, the systems that they used. Can you talk to us a little bit about the differences between Bitcoin and these other currencies and, and what's happening now that the market is you know, in flames? Yeah, so the, the mining of Bitcoin um, is incredibly energy heavy, as you described. And so, you know, for these last many months, it's actually been almost economically prohibitive to, to do it. That, you know, the, the way that you mine Bitcoin is by solving or having computers solve these incredibly complex equations. And it's interesting, I'm, I'm in New York and... There was a bill that the governor just signed last week. Um, it was passed by the Democratic-led uh, assembly earlier in the year. Calls for a two-year moratorium on building of um, cryptocurrency mines that rely on this kind of proof of work on uh, kind of a fossil fuel-based power plants that have gone into disuse. And, uh, you know, around the Finger Lakes in New York, places where there's a lot of energy infrastructure and water, um, these communities were... Not all welcoming, but there there were some that would welcome these crypto miners there to to run these operations. Um, a host of environmental concerns were raised as as a result of that. Now we have this moratorium in place. So yeah, there are these other cryptocurrencies that don't result involve that kind of work. But I just want to emphasize the point that you know as we've seen the value of, of, of Bitcoin decrease, uh, it just hasn't been as worth it or worth it for these miners to do that kind of work just because it costs so much in terms of energy consumption to to actually do the mining work. Oh, so interesting. We are talking about the cryptocurrency boom and bust with NPR Business Desk reporter David Gura, Margaret Omar, historian at University of Washington and author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America, and Hillary Allen, law professor at American University. We'd love to hear from you on whether you've invested in cryptocurrencies, how that's gone from you, gone for you. Maybe if you lost money in the FTX collapse, you can give us a call. The number is 866 733 6786. That's 866-733-6786. On Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Margaret, I wanted to ask you about another possible analog to what's happening, and that is the dot-com bubble burst. Do you see 
similarities, differences with this moment? Yeah, I see some similarities. You have a new, you know, uh, a new technology, new platform. Um, there's a great deal of excitement about its transformative potential um, as the internet commercializes the beginning of the 90s. And then there's a series of different um, companies that are offering ways to access that that internet. You might say, you know, in some ways, the uh, analog, you know, going back to the discussion about FTX, kind of making uh, complicated crypto more simple. Um, Netscape, the first web browser, um, you know, made the World Wide Web more um, simple. Um, and yes, there was a huge stock run up and a lot of froth um, that was in a low interest rate environment. Uh, there was money flowing. And then the bubble burst and um, some very spectacular failures. And then, uh, but I think there's a, I think one big difference is that in the 1990s.com boom, yes, there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of things that that were spectacular, you know, overvalued, a lot of Super Bowl ads that didn't pan out. Um, but there was a use case that was proved, multiple use cases that were proved, proven about the Internet's potential as a platform for commerce and communication um, and a lot of, uh, you know, value generated from that. And it, there's still, you know, in the broader kind of Web3 cryptocurrency enthusiasm that was crusting the earlier this year, you know, the, the counter of the skeptics was, OK, so what what are you doing with this that you couldn't already do? How is this improving, especially given? Given the you know as as David was discussing the 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 costs of the environmental costs of of these energy in, intensive um, coin mining operate, operations, which by the way, ironically, you know, able to do that because of all this publicly financed infrastructure, hydro electric power in rural upstate New York, et cetera. <laughs> So interesting. Um, let's go back to the phones. We've got Sarah in Oakland. Welcome. Hi there. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to make a comment on uh, the effective altruism discussion that you're having mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to, to, to point you to a, a Vox um, piece from November 16th where they actually engaged with SBF, Sam yeah. Beckenfried, and um, had a text exchange with him where he actually admitted that uh, he said – it was basically he was just playing everyone he said by this dumb game we woke westerners play where we say all the right shibboleths and so everyone likes us My God. so i don't yeah. I, I i don't really think he ever had any intention of giving away all of his money i think that was part of the part of the whole game yeah i have um, to say that also, whole interview which i don't think he expected to be published had incredible up late at a little bit too late at night uh vibes um but Sarah, did you want to finish your point? Sorry. Oh yeah. Well, I also wanted to say that was probably also before his lawyers kind of intervened. Um, yeah. uh, and I also wanted to uh, just uh, suggest that maybe you set aside a topic for another show about Bitcoin mining to really understand it, because I feel like it's um, it's it gets a lot of bad press and a lot, of, and it, it actually um, it can help build out the renewable grid and it can actually uh there are companies that are working in california and in the united states that are capturing methane which is you know Mm -hmm. the the most the worst uh uh, greenhouse gas uh, yeah greenhouse gas thanks um and so uh i think 
yeah, there's a lot to be said about that. Yeah. So I would really suggest that we that we uh, give Bitcoin mining a, a fair uh, treatment here. Cool. Hey, uh, thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Let's um, let's take David Gura. I'm assuming you saw this uh, box piece that came out in which SBF, as he was known, um, just was spilling the beans. It sounded like. Yeah, it was it was pretty extraordinary. So it was written by a columnist who. Um, is herself an effective altruist, and and the the sort of vertical at Vox is financed by um, FTX money, so it's sort of all in the ecosystem. And I think that they knew each other; they had a history with with one another. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very frank exchange via Twitter direct messages. And to pick up on what Sarah was saying, Sam Bigman has retained a very expensive lawyer, Michael Milken's former lawyer at Paul Weiss in in New York. And um, I, I don't have confidence. Bit on the nose there. Pulling, Bit on the pulling nose. His, yeah. Pulling his hair out um, because of how much Sam Bigman was talking, at least at the beginning, or DMing, or doing interviews. He did one with the Times. As well earlier on, but um, yeah, he was he was um, he was as Sarah said incredibly frank about this in a way that I think will disappoint many people in the effective altruism community. And um, you know, I, I interviewed Will McCaskill, who's a professor at Oxford, who wrote a book about this recently that really caught caught fire. And there are a lot of real believers in this, but I think that Sam Bankman-Fried's role in this, the degree to which he talked about it, the degree to which he gave money to these causes, and was kind of held up as an exemplar of it, and this was a motivation for him just to get into business broadly. He graduated from. MIT, and you know, it was it was a conversation about this that prompted him to go into trading uh, because it was a way to make money. And again, as we talked about earlier in the show, it was through that that he thought he could make the most difference on combating a lot of these issues. And we've talked about it a bit here, but um, you know, the, the the money that FTX was giving out for sort of pandemic preparedness and um, other huge social issues um, was critical to a lot of organizations around the country and around the world. And I think that the story that we're going to watch unfold here in the next many months is sort of how they pick up the pieces as a result of this. And, you know, I think in that exchange, on that Vox exchange, there's a lot to make it seem like he didn't really care about this stuff. But the fact of the matter is that the money was financing stuff that was hugely important to these nonprofits. And um, I think it's going to have a devastating effect on a lot of these groups. Absolutely. Yeah. Watching that money wash into lots of places and then now have it wash out is going to be ugly. We're talking about the cryptocurrency boom and bust and the secondary effects of all the things that have happened after the collapse of the FTX uh, exchange. Joined by NPR Business Desk reporter David Gura, Margaret O'Mara, historian at University of Washington and author of The Code, and Hillary Allen, law professor at American University. We're going to take more calls after the break. Have you invested in crypto? Numbers 866-733-6786. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the cryptocurrency boom and bust with NPR's David Gura, University of Washington's Margaret O'Mara, and American University's Hillary Allen. Uh, you know, listener Matt writes in to say, I think that coin exchanges are an example of good technology gone bad. Blockchain is great for lots of things, but it's turned into the same thing as social media, overhyped, overfunded, and overtrusted. Let's deploy this to the legal industry, real estate transactions, elections. Hillary Allen, we see Matt here trying to differentiate between kind of crypto as an asset class and maybe blockchain as a conceptual framework for uh, doing transactions in the world. Um, What do you think about that? So you hear this a lot. And, you know, for a long time, I was sort of along that journey to say, well, I've got a problem with crypto, but but maybe there's something there with blockchain. But the more you look into the actual technology of it, the more you realize its inadequacies. So blockchain technology is inherently inefficient. That's the whole point, right? Because if you're trying to get rid of trusted intermediaries, you need to make it hard for someone else to take over the blockchain. So it's never going to be as efficient as a centralized alternative. So the only thing you could possibly get out of it is decentralization. And then you look at how it operates in the real world and decentralization is slow and cumbersome and messy. So as you've said, with like with FTX and other intermediaries, they've gotten involved to make the user experience more smooth. So we've added the intermediaries back in but then still have the underlying inefficiency, clunkiness, environmental waste, if we're talking about Bitcoin, et cetera, um, of the the underlying technology. So, you know, you asked Margaret earlier about how this is like the dot-com bubble and how it's not. Um, I'll be really interested to see if there's anything that survives from this, because I just don't see the technology having real Mm. use cases. Mm. You know, the thing that I I can imagine crypto people, I've heard them use this word a lot, permissionless, right? That seems to be something that people really like about this particular realm. Can you describe that concept? And and isn't that something that blockchain gives you that's different? Well, this... That concept of permissionless is tied to this concept of decentralization, the idea that, you know, there's no intermediaries or individuals who can stop you from using this. And that's just frankly not how it works in reality, right? Unless you are, you know, hosting the blockchain on your own servers, you're going through all kinds of intermediaries you might not appreciate. Um, You know, there are the wallets, there are people like uh, Infura and Alchemy um, that that provide APIs for accessing the blockchain. There are the exchanges themselves. I mean, the exchanges in particular are how most people get into and out of crypto. And because they're gatekeepers, you know, they Mm. they can do whatever they want, right? So this idea of being completely divorced from anyone telling you what to do or anyone having control over you. Nice in theory. It's not how it works in practice. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it could ever actually be achieved. Going to go back to the phones in just one sec, but wanted to read a couple of comments. Uh, Maury writes, I want to point out there's a massive difference between a national fiat currency and Bitcoin, etc. In the event of an economic or other disaster, a national government has the power to tax the citizenry to cover the fallout from a crisis. So a national fiat currency has the population at its back. In, in many ways. Good point, Mari. Um, and Sue writes, this all seems wrong and short-sighted to me. If we have money to invest, we should put it towards our values in the future. Especially now, our money needs to go towards slowing global warming, fixing the problems we have, and spreading money to people who need it. And this great rich quick thinking used to be out of the ordinary or a scam to be avoided. Or am I wrong? Um, you know, Sue, I think 
I think some people thought they were investing their values in this. I think there was a, some real beliefs, don't you think, Margaret Omar, that that investing in crypto was investing in, I guess, a, a libertarian ideal, uh, a less government-rich financial system. Um, like, how, how, there, there, there were ideals, I think, and still are for many crypto people that I think are quite um, honestly held. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I mean, the the origins of you know a, a currency that is freed from uh, it's transnational, that's freed from the nation state. I mean, we can it, it does. It's been floating around tech circles for a while. It has roots in the sort of Silicon Valley flavor of techno libertarianism that um, uh, you know wants to get bureaucracies out of your out of your business to give essentially create permissionless um, and get rid of gatekeepers. And I I think another thing that is you know. So this anti-government sentiment is is part of it, um, and uh, and 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 there's also like think about the long shadow of the Great Recession and the global financial crisis of 2008, and how many people got um, you know upended by the traditional financial system and the big banks, the banks that were too big to fail, the banks that were bailed out while individuals weren't. And I think this um, feeling that there wasn't a place for you in this system, um, and and particularly in the wake of that of the crisis where you have the rise of these giant tech platforms that become enormous and seem to control everything on what used to be seemingly a much more decentralized and individualized um, internet where more people felt like they had control over building things. Of course, the internet was much smaller then, but um, you know those sentiments, I, I think there, it's a very real sentiment. I think that also is fueling the, you know, the, the effective altruism community too. the, you know, the young people who are, there are a lot of people who are, you know, kind including in the Bay Area, sort of a, a very sort of vital community of which Sam Bankman-Fried was originally a part, um, yeah. that, you know, trying to find alternatives to these grand challenges and finding some way to empower the individual. Mm -hmm. And we heard this again and again. And, and and you know, that's that's a real need that these technologies were purporting or these philosophies mm -hmm. were purporting to answer. I also just want to note, I mean, you know, hating banks is quite common in our society, not a popular uh, by you know, set of set of institutions, in part because of the uh, 2008 mortgage crisis. But also, I, I think it's worth noting for people who, you know, most people I think have, have seen this, there's just been incredible um, centralization in that world. I mean, there used to be so many more local banks that were that had that actually made loans, you know, and, and did all these things. And, you know, not just in the 2008 mortgage crisis, but savings and loan crisis before that and other things. We've seen just consolidation on a, on a level that um, I, I think people are, I mean, quite honestly, right to distrust. Um, let's uh, bring in Kane from Fairfield. Hey, how's it going? Hey, welcome. Yeah, so you know, I just wanted to share my experience with uh, um, crypto, uh, you know, this whole thing with FTX. Um, you know, that actually happened to me in 2000. I think it was around 2015 with an mm. exchange called Cryptsy. Mm -hmm. And um, his name was Big Vern, Paul Vernon. He actually, uh, you know, disappeared with all the money. I think they said he was like in Hong Kong or something. <clears throat> but um, w one thing I wanted to say was that... Um, um, you know, these exchanges, of course, it's dangerous keeping your money on there. And I learned that a long time ago. Yeah. And the, um, a lot of people don't know, but there's um, there's uh, private wallets where you can keep your money. Um, it's basically you keep your keys to your cryptocurrency on a file. 
-hmm. and um, no exchange has access to it. The only risk there is that if you lose it, um, then it's gone. Right. You know, Kane, what was the original appeal of like doing crypto stuff for you? So for me, it was because, you know, I heard about Bitcoin when it was worthless, less than a penny. My friends told me about it and um, I didn't really understand it. But at that time, I was learning about stocks. And um, I saw when Bitcoin went from I, I saw it hit $20 and I was thinking, you know, it's too late to invest. And then, um, you know, a little while later, I saw it go from 20 to 200. Hmm. And so since I was understanding uh, the stocks at that time, like I completely knew like this is a great investment. Um, but, you know, it took me a while to um, before I really started investing. And I didn't actually buy Bitcoin because I still felt like it was too high. Um, and uh, I invested in some other cryptocurrencies, which honestly today I would have calculated. I would have $2 million if <laughs> Cripsy had not taken my money. Uh, and um, But, you know, he says he got hacked. So the story behind that is kind of, uh, you know, ambiguous. Yeah. Man, Kane, well, thank you for sharing uh, that experience. I mean, it's it's wild. I mean, I think that the and maybe Hillary Allen will, will go to you on this, this sense that people have of being able to see those paper gains, particularly looking at, you know, the the price of Bitcoin or when these cryptocurrencies were really, truly uh, worthless, those that have retained some value. The numbers are are really large, like larger than you could really imagine investing in regular old equities. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. I mean, equities in general, we have valuation methods that help us figure out sort of what they're worth. And, and that's not to say that equity prices are always rational. They can they can um, get a little crazy themselves. But going back to a comment that was made earlier by a caller, in the end, there are assets, personnel, IP, et cetera, that can all be valued in a way of sort of calculating what the, the equity price is. Valuation metrics for crypto are incredibly challenging because there is no fundamental value behind there. It's an entirely sentiment-based asset class, by which I mean it's only worth what someone's willing to pay you. There is no sort of bankruptcy value if you sell off all the tokens. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a really hard place for anyone to to try and sort of value what's going on. David Guru, what do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think as I talk to people who uh, are real boosters of of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, a lot of them got in very early, and I think that that's kind of presented this problem that you know maybe they bought it for twenty dollars or two hundred dollars or two thousand dollars, and it's risen so much since then. And yes, it's fallen, but not to that level mm -hmm. um, that that's enabled them to continue to say like, stay in this for the long term. Look at how far it's climbed. Yeah, it's down, but it's still not where it was. And I think it's kind of polluted up until this point, perhaps, our sense of value or worth. But I think that Hillary is exactly right, that a, you know, a huge stumbling block for somebody who's coming to this, not you know really open to this or a believer in this, is that you just there are no technical metrics for you to, to analyze the, the worth of these cryptocurrencies. And, and I, I think that that's been a problem, and it's likely to be a bigger problem going forward. I just, you know, I want to, if I could, yeah. just talk about, you know, this summer, um, I interviewed Sam Bankman-Fried, and um, I've been thinking a lot about just the moment in which I did that interview, and I'm sure that you, Alexis, have had times like this where you've spoken with somebody, then when, you know, a, a few months hindsight, have gone back and listened to it, and you kind of wish you'd asked something else or knew something mm -hmm. more. But mm -hmm. it was at this moment where 
all of these other crypto companies had failed and FTX had kind of swept in under his guidance to bail them out or to buy them out. And that was very much like the fervor that was motivating me to, to want to talk to him. It was certainly why, you know, what he was talking about when he was in Washington, where I did speak with him. And I just think back on that and just sort of how effectively, you know, we're talking about messaging and sort of to your question just about valuation. I think that like FTX really harnessed this this sense of messaging really well. And I, I listened back to that tape and I fault myself a lot for not not seeing through that. But I think a lot of people were, were swept up in that. And he kind of cultivated this sense that he was the white knight coming in to, again, bring people above board or do well by by this industry. I asked, I asked him pretty explicitly, is it his obligation, is it an executive, executive's obligation to rescue or try to help a company that's in bad times for the sake of the ecosystem? And he he said yes. Um, so he was really he was really riding that, and I think you know there's a lot that we're going to find out as these investigations unfold from from regulators and from law enforcement as well. But I'm I personally am very curious as how calculated that was on on his part of hmm. building up this sense of credibility. And I'm, I've been thinking a lot just about credibility in this space and going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, how there was this sense of you know Gary Gensler, the SEC chair, has called crypto the Wild West. You know, he Sam Bankman-Fried really tried to carve out his company as something different than that, and he went after credibility by getting really well-known, a lot of Bay Area VC funds to, to back him. That was one level of credibility. He amassed more by going to Washington in a way that few executives do and talking to lawmakers and regulators and then talking to journalists who cover them, of course, as well. I'll, I'll admit that as well. And then the third is through these namings rights deals and endorsement deals, kind of getting people to think at a, at a, at a larger, more popular level that this, this company was something real and something, dare I say, good. So that, that's something I'm really chewing over a lot is just how how effectively, how masterfully he sensed and understood how he needed to go about establishing brand credibility and, and really did that, I think, up until this point. Yeah. I mean, weirdly, because, you know, the traditional sense of like, wear a suit and, you know, talk in a certain, you know, <laughs> dialect of, you know, uh, upper middle class business life. Those, that's actually not how he did it. It was more about this sort of like authentic seeming T-shirt and shorts kid. And Margaret, I kept when I kept running into this over the years, I, I was always thinking about the points that you've made about about our mythologies, particularly about these young male founders with technical chops and everyone who invests in this ecosystem is just kind of pattern matching to that. Yeah, I mean, he was he was picking up on this this pattern and 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 taking advantage of it. And to the degree it was sort of a canny play, and 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 the degree that it wasn't, I guess we're gonna we're we're finding out. But mm -hmm. this is very uh, you know indelible, and it and it has been you know it's really at the root of it's both the secret of Silicon Valley and also it's Achilles' heel. This kind of resolute, you know, let's find the next the next person. And often that person is a guy who has a, you know, kind of presents in a certain way and has a certain background. And this foregrounding of engineering thinking over other things, over experience um, and kind of a tolerance of a, you know, very loose uh, corporate governance also has a, um, a long history. Yeah. You know, uh, listener art asks, and Hillary, that will come to you on this one first. Couldn't one come to the conclusion that because of its terrible environmental impacts and because of the fact that it is really unstable due to the lack of any true value tied to it, cryptocurrency should be outlawed? China outlawed cryptocurrency, so shouldn't we? Or are we going to let the marketplace just go unregulated and people on the planet will continue to be at risk? Yeah, so I actually think that there's a strong case to be made for a ban in this space. But I think realistically, that's probably not going to happen because of the messaging that we just talked about in detail, right? The, the, the crypto industry has been very successful 
in their messaging, in part because of what Margaret said, that there are real pain points that crypto has identified. I think the critique of our existing financial system, of our existing big tech system that crypto offers is very solid. But the problem is it doesn't solve those problems. It recreates them often in a worse way. The thing with, um, you know, this goes back to the whole Silicon Valley mythology. The problems that we have with big tech and big finance are structural problems that need political solutions and they can't be solved with tech. If you just have the tech without the structural political solutions, you're just going to perpetuate the same problems. Mm. Um, and so that's sort of the bind we find ourselves in. We have a we have a difficult political situation. It's hard to get anything moving. You know, not only do people want to get rich quick, people want to fix things quick. And, and that's totally understandable when, especially with climate change, you know, things like seeing time is time is of the essence. But unfortunately, technology can't fix these things on its own. Yeah. David, quickly, uh, before we have to go, what are you looking for? Like, what are the things you're watching out for over the next couple of weeks to, to kind of see which way the wind is blowing? Yeah, picking up on what Hillary said, I'm going to be paying close attention to these hearings on Capitol Hill. And I think that comes out of an interest in just seeing if anything has changed as a result of this. And there's been a lot of kind of happy talk from um, lawmakers who chair those committees that this time is different and things are going to be different. But, um, you know, as, as Hillary was saying there, um, th- there's been kind of widespread confusion on Capitol Hill. And I think that there is a, a good argument to be had about regulation and what kind of regulation. But Congress seems sort of mired in this debate over what it should do, if anything. And I, I think, you know, it'll be interesting if Sam Bankman-Fried does testify. I know the House Financial Services Committee has invited him or expects him to do so. We'll see if that happens. But I think that you know, a couple of weeks from now, I'd just like to see if there's been any sort of effort to sort of coalesce around what the path forward should be here in terms of what lawmakers are going to telegraph to regulators and to the American public about how they're going to approach this asset going forward. Mm. One last listener comment, Gene writes in to say, re-crypto being a response to government control and regulations and a path to individual freedom. How naive can people be? Silicon Valley's mantra is move fast and break things. And that's exactly what happened with Christo, crypto. Uh, Gene, I want to say, I think they've moved away from that particular mantra. Uh, I've been trying to, at least. Uh, we have been talking about cryptocurrency with David Gore, reporter with NPR's Business Desk. Thanks for joining us, David. Appreciate it. Thank you. Also been joined by Margaret O'Mara, historian of the modern United States at the University of Washington. You should really read her book, The Code, if you want to know more about the technology industry. Thanks for joining us, Margaret. Thanks so much, Alexis. And we've been joined by Hillary Allen, a law professor at American University. Thank you, Hillary. My pleasure. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's great to be back with you after the Thanksgiving break. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.